0: You know like i couldn't go to barnes and noble and pick up say computer arts magazine or net magazine and look through the pages and see someone that looked like me doing this i couldn't see that this is design matters with debbie millman
1: On this episode, Debbie talks with Maurice
0: Cherry about his education and career, and about why the profession of graphic design has been so slow to acknowledge black designers. Black people were barely free a hundred years ago, so certainly they weren't thinking about us as being graphic designers. Here's Debbie, first with a couple of messages, then her interview with Maurice Cherry.
1: My friend Koi Vin is an internet pioneer and the senior director of design at Adobe is also the host of a fantastic podcast called Wireframe, a show for designers and the design curious about how UX can help technology fit into our lives. And now with the pandemic upending culture, a new season of Wireframe is investigating how COVID-19 affects the work we all do. Just search Wireframe in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now, and you'll find three seasons of original episodes. I'll also include a link in my show notes. Big thanks to Adobe and Wireframe for supporting design matters. Also, I want to share a brand new and very special podcast with you today. It's called Dear Therapists, and it is hosted by my friend Lori Gottlieb and her friend Guy Winch. They're acclaimed therapists and advice columnists, and Lori wrote the New York Times best-selling book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Sit in on their intimate, raw, and transformative sessions as they guide fellow travelers through the everyday and extraordinary challenges of daily life, while offering behind-the-scenes insight into what makes us all human. Find Dear Therapists on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where are all the Black designers? That's what Maurice Cherry has been asking for a very long time. Maurice is on a mission to amplify as many Black creative voices as possible on his award-winning podcast, Revision Path. When he didn't see Black bloggers and podcasters being celebrated, he founded the Black Weblog Awards. And as a creative director, designer, writer, editor, and activist, he is working to give voice to underrepresented communities. Maurice Cherry was recently named to The Roots' 100 Most Influential African-Americans, and in 2018, he received the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary. Maurice Cherry, welcome to Design Matters.
0: Debbie, thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor.
1: Oh, for me, for me. Maurice, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your love of the Cartoon Network television show, Stephen Universe. (laughs)
0: oh steven universe um i well i really like that show i also like the uh sort of series that came afterwards steven universe future it's a very progressive show it's also just a very fun show in terms of how they build character how they manage to create an entire world and a mythology behind you know these kind of simple rock-based alien beings or what have you. It's just a really good show. I don't know how I first stumbled across it, but since I have discovered it, which has been probably a few years ago, I've been a very ardent fan of it, have seen all the episodes, seen the movie, know the songs, everything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're you're tempting me
1: here. I'm going to hold myself back from asking you to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Maurice, you grew up in Selma, Alabama, and are among the first generation of residents post the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Did you understand the relevance of Selma as you were growing up?
0: Yes and no. Certainly as a kid, uh, and I would say really just as a resident of Selma overall, but particularly as a kid, uh, you are very much taught about the history of the city and what it means in the history of civil of the civil rights movement. Um so I mean I had teachers in elementary school that would take us to field trips downtown and show us the blood spots on the pavement where they were beat during Bloody Sunday. So it was one of those things where you always had a history of what went on there, what went on in Selma and Montgomery and the March. I mean I've walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge countless times, <laughs> um, uh, and so it's, it's uh, something that certainly as I was growing up, I had no idea about it. I just knew that I was in this very small southern town, and we knew about the history of it, but there wasn't really that much outside of it that I knew. It was very much a bubble. It was Selma. It was Montgomery. It was kind of you know just south-central Alabama in general, and that's about it. That's really all I knew for a long time
1: you moved quite a bit through elementary school and every time you relocated, it resulted in your attending a different school. You also went to a school for gifted students, which meant you went to one school with mostly black students and another with mostly white students. And you've said that this de facto segregation was still very much the case in Alabama in the 1980s. What was that like for you?
0: It's interesting because when I think about it in hindsight, I didn't know the difference. Like, I didn't know that this was a different thing for, for kids to do. Uh, the gifted program that was started in Selma uh, started when I was in second grade. And that was actually the, not the first person or the first child to be, I was actually the third. Uh, there were two others. There was a black girl named Geraldine and a white girl named Tabitha. And I was the the first male to be in the program. And it wasn't something that I really thought of as different at the time. I just knew that I had been tested. And with the test, they said that I was much smarter than other kids. And so we did this thing where I would go to my regular home elementary school, which was Edgewood Elementary. And then on some days, I would go to Cedar Park, which is in a totally different part of town, more in the white part of town. And I would you know, take classes there. And so I was just introduced to two sets of kids growing up I had the kids that I knew from Edgewood but then there were also the kids I knew from Cedar Park and even though Cedar Park was in a more white part of Selma it was a pretty integrated school so I had you know kind of black and white friends really at at both schools and I didn't know that it was really different I think until sixth grade because at that point for sixth grade I went to an entirely different school called Bird Elementary which was in the like very affluent, as as affluent as Selma can be, but like in the very affluent white part of Selma. And that was a really big culture shock because it was pretty much completely white. And there was such a stark difference in just what the schools offered. Like we went to Bird and they had computer labs and they had custom menus that you could get for for lunch and then i would go to edgewood and it's like the same rectangular pizza on styrofoam trays like it was just totally completely different uh it wasn't until seventh grade when the the various elementary schools kind of merged into two middle schools that these worlds kind of started to collide a bit from eighth grade on to graduation uh, from high school my gifted class was actually also in the same school so it In the later years of my education, it certainly wasn't something that was that different. I just went to an extra class. You've said that when the schools, when all the schools
1: merged... Uh, that this time of your life was enlightening for several reasons, one because of school, another because your older brother went off to college, and one because this was shortly after your parents split up. And I read that you were actually relieved when your parents got divorced. I was too, actually. I was really curious. why, Why were you relieved? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um wow wow you really did your research <laughs> because i never i'd never really talk about that uh why was i relieved uh for several reasons um the first reason is that my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family never got along and my father's side of the family kind of always felt like i was taking my mom's side of the family things which was really odd but then my father's side of the family didn't really live in selma like my mom's side did so it was this weird sort of push-pull kind of tension just between the two families themselves um i would wager my parents at that point probably just weren't getting along i I mean i'll i'll talk about it why not uh at at the time my dad was uh pretty strung out on drugs Mm. and The basically just the relationship between him and my mother just splintered and fractured to the point where there were no kind of there was no sort of way to reconcile that. I mean, there was abuse, there were things getting stolen, there were drugs, like it was a whole thing. And so I was very relieved because he one was never really around and never set. A good example as to like, oh, this is who you should be as like a man and as a person, which was interesting because he was that when I was younger. It was very much me seeing his sort of gradual decline as he as he got older and as I got older. But over a pretty short period of time, I would say probably from the ages of like six to 13, because I remember being six years old. And my dad was an engineer at GE. He worked in plastics. Very smart guy. And then, like, by the time I was 13 and I was heading into middle school, he was, you know, running the streets, hooked on drugs, you know, pawning what he could. And it was a relief because, like, who wants to be around that? Yeah. Who? I mean, you, you go to sleep and you've got, like, a television in your room or something. And then you wake up and your father's unplugged the TV and he's, like, going out the window with it. Like, you're, you don't feel any sort of sense of permanence or safety. Not just in the fact that, you know, he's kind of connected to a more nefarious element, but also just like, you don't even know if you're going to have your stuff when you wake up in the morning because he might have pawned it for a quick fix. And so I was relieved when they broke up and divorced uh, because, like, who wants to be around that? Nobody wants to be around that. That's not a—I mean, as I can look back at it in hindsight and say that's not a good environment for a child. But, like, it just wasn't good— In general. And then, like, I share his name like I'm a junior. so, (laughs) And and we look alike. And I would always get told by members on my mom's side of the family how much I looked like him, which then also had this weird level of tension because they treated me differently because I looked like him. And I'm like, look, I can't control that. That's genetics. I can't do anything about that, you know. Um, So when they broke up, I was very relieved because at least it meant some level of safety and some level of hopefully normalcy. Like who wants that as you're growing up, you know, it's, it's just not a a very stable environment, I think for, for a kid to be in. You've spoken about how
1: artistic your brother is, your older brother, but also how difficult his life has been. I believe he was incarcerated and he also had um, problems with drugs. Um, and how much he bullied you growing up? Between your dad and your brother, Maurice, you were treated rather badly. Oh yeah. How did you survive? How did you? How did you make it out? Because you are just so extraordinary.
0: <laughs> um, wow. How did I make it out? It's 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 it's, a, it's something that I don't really I think look back on and, and sort of wonder like wow I made it out because at the time you're just trying to make it through, you know, at the, at the time when all this is happening. So just to kind of put this in context, um, I think I was around 13 years old when my parents divorced. Uh, my brother went off to college when he was 18. So we're four years apart. So I was about 14 then. So I was about to like enter high school and I'm like, Oh, I've got my own room now. And I have like some kind of freedom, you know? Uh, but then he unfortunately, uh, got kicked out the first year and then came back home and then fell into a bad element then got put into jail and so it was always this like weird specter around honestly like the family name i mean selma is not a big town so it was just like now this is like attached to my name like my last name's like oh he's one of those cherries you heard about his father you heard about his brother that kind of thing yeah um so it just kind of stuck with me in that way and i guess the way that i tried to or the way that i did get through it was by focusing on other things i mean when i was in high school i was in the math club and i was in marching band and i did all these other things that kind of took me out of being at home a whole lot but then when there were instances where i were at home i had other things to focus on so even though my brother and I went back at one point to sharing a room together, like I could focus on my music or I could focus on schoolwork or I could read a book or something like that. So also my grandmother, my mother's mother uh, also lived in Selman. so that also provided an outlet for me to stay with her if I needed to, you know, in case it got really bad for some reason or, or, you know, something like that. But, I know that my mom was doing the best job that she could with what she had. I mean, she was working at, you know, community college and I know she was going through her fair share of stuff at work, being a black woman working in in a STEM field. Like she went through her fair share of things and then having to come home and deal with these two kids like my brother would be out running the streets and just doing all kind of stuff. And I ended up just kind of being the one that she didn't have to worry about. Like, oh, Maurice is good. Like Maurice has got music, he's got, you know, his video games, whatever, he's good. And I just kind of focused on being and staying in that creative bubble as all this happened and just didn't really try to focus on the the negative stuff that was happening. Speaking of other things to focus
1: on, I understand that both your mother and grandmother were seamstresses. And I believe that you can sew rather well yourself and can even (laughs) do quite an impressive cross-stitch, Maurice. Yes. Uh, cross-stitch. Wow.
0: (laughs) I They taught me how to sew uh, from a very young age. And I learned cross-stitch, I think, in second, probably second grade, I think I learned it. And uh, that was also part of the gifted class that I was taking. They taught us how to do cross-stitch. And It was very math based. It's, I mean, the cross stitch cloth that you use is a grid, and it's some of them already have holes kind of in the cloth. So it's very easy to make your own patterns and follow patterns that you get. Uh, But yeah, also eventually learned how to use, you know, home sewing machine. And I mean, my mother, when I had school plays and things, would sew all my costumes. She sewed like this one piece clown outfit wow. that I had for a, a play in second grade. She sewed this big purple cape uh, for when I played King Ferdinand in a play in fifth grade. Like she she was, she's great. And my grandmother is also, um, like you mentioned, a seamstress also. So I do know how to sew. I used it in college for a little bit to make a little bit of money because the guys in my dorm didn't know how to sew. And if something happened, they would just buy a new pair of socks or whatever. And I'm like, oh, I can fix that.
1: Ever the entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Maurice, you grew up loving to write and draw. You did origami. You started learning how to speak French in the second grade. You were also a budding musician. But I read that the main reason you started studying music was not because you had a burning desire to be a brass player, but rather because you wanted to get out of sixth and seventh period.
0: Yes, (laughs) that's very true. I was in seventh grade and... (laughs) I forget what classes I had, 6th and 7th period, but they obviously weren't very enlightening. Um, And I liked the fact that the band students were able to get out early and do practice. And so I said, oh, I want to, you know, join the band. And I really didn't have an idea. I think at first I told my band director, Mr. Ruffin, I think I told him I wanted to learn the saxophone. And uh, the saxophone, for some reason, I think I didn't take to it because of all of the keys. And then I wanted to do the trumpet, but the mouthpiece is so small and I couldn't form a tight enough embouchure to actually make a note. And so it was like, oh, well, we'll just step one down and you'll do a trombone. And then the trombone just happened to be the instrument for me. And the trombone is a a deceptively uh, challenging instrument because it's really just one long tube. All you're doing is controlling the length of the tube and the air that flows through it. And so There are seven positions that are not marked positions. You have to know them as, you know, just by feel. Um, And you have to know the sound by pitch. You just have to be able to recognize it. And so I kind of took to the trombone very easily. And later, in later years, I ended up picking up the trumpet and I picked up the baritone and picked up the tuba, like all the brass instruments. But I started out with the trombone in seventh grade.
1: You learned an important lesson as you were first practicing and putting time into becoming a better musician and have written about how that experience taught you that you have to suck first in order to get better. And I was wondering how this thinking has helped you
0: in your work. Well, I think it's helped me to know that whenever I'm starting something new that I don't have to necessarily start it perfectly, the audience doesn't necessarily know how much time you've put into it at the beginning. They just know that you've started it. And so wherever you start, for all intents and purposes, you kind of have nowhere to go but up. Hopefully, you can build some kind of upgrade path. And so for projects that I start, I try to get to a good base level and then know that I can always kind of improve and upgrade from there, because I'll get suggestions from other people, the you know content or, or whatever the project is may find a different audience, and we can always sort of branch out from there. So I never try to start too rigidly with something. I just kind of plant the seed and then just see what grows.
1: Maurice, you excelled academically all through elementary, middle, and high school. So much so, you were on track to become the first black male valedictorian in your high school's history. And what happens next in your life is is rather chilling. I'm wondering if you can give us an, an understanding of what happened in your community when it first was apparent that you were going to be that the first Black male valedictorian.
0: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's now, now, I'm laughing at this not because it's funny. It's not funny. I can laugh at it because it happened to me. I can sort of look back and be like, my God. Uh, because in a way, it's almost cartoonish. Like, it's almost a cartoonish level of racism that I experienced uh, during, I'd say, my last Really my last semester of high school when it was becoming really apparent, you know, kind of what the, the grades were and how it was going to shake out. And uh, so the, the high school that I went to, Selma High School, which is still there, it was a predominantly black school. I think it still is predominantly black school. And that last semester, once it really kind of came out like, oh, Maurice is going to be the, the valedictorian, this was going to happen, is that there were teachers at the school that were conspiring against me. There were school board members that were conspiring against me and conspiring feels like such a sinister word to use. But in hindsight, it's the, it's the proper word. Like these were people that they were intentionally like throwing wrenches in the system to make sure that I would not become valedictorian. So I had a a teacher who was my AP English teacher for um, 11th and 12th grade was my journalism teacher who completely failed me on purpose. The reasoning that she gave behind it as I came to find out was not even in as much about my personal achievement. It had to do with something a bit deeper that went on. Um so I did not graduate valedictorian. I ended up graduating salutatorian. But it was one of those kinds of situations where, you know, leading up to me graduating, I was already like ready to get out of Alabama. Like I could not get out fast enough
1: but maurice i also i also not not to interrupt you but i do think it's important to to mention i i mean i don't know if this is true but in my research i found that you were also sent death threats
0: that is true i'm i'm not meaning to gloss over all that but yeah some of this i i haven't really mentioned a lot because like my mom doesn't even know about some of this stuff i mean i try to, to keep as much of it away from her as possible but why
1: didn't you so what made you want to hide this from her in 12th grade here you are number one in your class you are exceeding on every level and then teachers start changing your grades you start getting death threats your student guidance counselor wouldn't give you access to college applications or vouchers. Oh, that's right.
0: I forgot about her. Yeah, They insisted that you
1: attend a local community college to study auto mechanics and HVAC rather than go on to a state or, or um, an out of state college. So why did you want to keep this from your mom?
0: Honestly, it was for the same reasons that I mentioned before around, like I didn't want to have to be the one that she had to worry about um like she already had to deal with like this shitty ex-husband and like she's got to deal with this other son that's like running the streets and in trouble with the law like i don't want to have to be another source of stress and you know she's already dealing with stuff at work too my mom is a very strong woman very strong woman very 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 strong woman and her dreams were not to stay in selma and raise a family (laughs) She, you know, as I was, you know, was very smart going to school and had opportunities well outside of Alabama and ended up kind of getting trapped here. And, you know, I just didn't want to have to be another thing that she had to worry about at the end of the day. Like, you've got all this other stuff. I'm not trying to be an additional source of stress for you. Like, I got this.
1: Are any of those teachers that tried to hold you back aware of how far you've come?
0: Uh, there definitely are some teachers that I had from back then that are still teaching there that know. And uh, unfortunately, they still kind of hold that same enmity. I can't really do anything about that. It's not my job to, you know, to fix that. Uh, like, I've never been asked to come back or speak at my high school. And I've tried. I've tried to, like, say, oh, I want to come back and talk about how I got through. And no, <laughs> they don't want to hear it. So Jeez. um yeah, some of those same teachers are are still around. and uh, That's you know, scary. That is terrifying. It is what it is.
1: You ended up getting a job at Kmart to earn your own money to apply to colleges, and you did. You got a full-ride scholarship offer to every major college in Alabama, but you didn't want to stay in Alabama. On the last day of high school, you won the largest number of awards, and one was from Morehouse College in yeah. Atlanta, Georgia who not only offered you a full scholarship, you were invited to participate in their Project Space program, which came with an internship at NASA. So you went to Morehouse.
0: Yes. I left Selma two weeks after graduation. As soon as I could get all my supplies and stuff together, I was out. I didn't have a party. I didn't say (laughs) goodbye to anybody. I was out. Um, And so I started off doing the summer program in the summer of 99 in Atlanta at Morehouse. And I think for anyone who lives in the deep South, and and when I say deep South, I mean like Mississippi, Alabama, probably parts of South Carolina, Tennessee, or North Florida, like Atlanta is the destination. Like that's our big city to go to. So even as kids, we knew all about Atlanta every time. You know, we did well on the standardized test. Oh, we're going to go to Six Flags in Atlanta. Like, there was always a a lure of Atlanta being, like, the big city. And so the fact that Morehouse was such a well-known school in the black community and that i got so many scholarships my mom was not crazy about it at first she didn't want to fly there right she's like you're not going to be here and and like i don't want to have to drive all okay. that far to get there and everything <laughs> um i think eventually Moms. you know she's she's come yeah i mean she came to terms with it but yeah. you know at the time she was not like she really didn't want me to go somewhere super far like stanford or harvard or something that's like where that. you but,
1: wanted to go though
0: Yeah, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to, like, go as far as I could possibly go. But Morehouse, I was like, you know what? Sure, why not? I know about Atlanta. It's a good school from what I've heard. I knew about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King going there. And so I knew about Benjamin E. Mays going there. And I knew where it could possibly set me up for life, just in terms of the huge network. And, um, yeah, I ended up going.
1: You initially started as a computer science and engineering major in an effort to, I believe, uh, mimic Dwayne Wayne from the television show, A Different World, Mm -hmm. but quickly discovered that it wasn't the major for you and changed it to mathematics. Why math? Math is great.
0: (laughs) I was always good at math. It was one of my, my best subjects in school. I was captain of my math team in high school. And even with the courses that I took in the summer, Leading up to that fall semester, I had more credits in math because I took um, AP Calculus in high school and then I took Cal 2 over the summer uh, before I started. So I actually was able to start freshman year taking Cal 3, which was the not the highest level of calculus you could take, but certainly the highest level as a freshman that you could take. And so I had more credits and I did the math to see how many credits I could get in, you know, to graduate. And switching the math actually would have made me graduate sooner, which I did. Instead of staying in this kind of uh, five-year program with computer science and computer engineering and graduating with a bachelor's and a master's, I initially did want to go into computer science. Well, yes, because of kind of mimicking Dwayne Wayne from A Different World, but also I had been very much exposed to the web at this point. And now this is, you know, we're talking high school, so this is 95 to 99, like those early like browser war days of the web oh i miss those so much (laughs) netscape navigator and all that i miss it so it was just such a different time and it was just filled with so much discovery because i mean i knew about how to do you know stuff with basic but at this point in time there's this new language called html and so i'm able to like actually look behind the scenes at how all these web pages are made and i taught myself html and i was i would go to my uh go to the computer lab at my mom's job and stay there until they closed on the web, making web pages on GeoCities and Tripod and just like getting, I don't know, this fire hose of knowledge about the web. I mean, but then when I got to Morehouse and started with this computer science stuff, they were teaching us C++. And I'm like, where's the web? This isn't <laughs> what I wanted to learn. I, wanted to, I want to learn how to make web pages and, and do all kind of cool stuff. And I remember going to my... My advisor at the time, who was also my professor, Dr. Jones, who's passed on, rest in peace. um, But him telling me, you know, that the Internet is a fad and that if this is what you want to focus on, then you need to think about switching your major because that's not what we do here. And so I switched it. I did the math, literally, to see kind of what my credits would look like upon graduating and said, you know what? I actually do like math. So, sure. Why not?
1: This summer after your freshman year, you started your internship with NASA. You worked in robotics education at the Ames Research Center at Mottfield field in Silicon Valley California mm-hmm. this was your first time outside of the South what was that
0: like for you oh wow first time on a plane first time I had a burrito actually <laughs> uh, I remember changed forever my- I'm assuming I- Listen, my, my advisor at the time, her name was Heather Thompson. She took us to Whole Foods. It was my first time being at Whole Foods. She took us to Whole Foods and like, she's like, oh, here's a burrito bar. And I was like, what is that? She's like, oh, it's a bar. You make your own burrito. And I'm like, wait, what is that? <laughs> you <know? laughs> And so she's showing us like how to make it and everything. And I remember like my first burrito was like the size of a small child. Like it was huge. <laughs> and I'm like, this is amazing. Y'all eat these out here? Like we eat. Like, pick back home. Like, I've never had this before. What is <laughs> So I was exposed to a lot of firsts in California, those things. Um, my best friend in college is from the Bay Area, too. He's from Richmond, which is um, a little bit north of Berkeley in the Bay Area. Um, and So I got to hang out with him and his friends. And I was introduced to, like, West Coast hip-hop, which was so much different from Southern hip-hop and just everything. First time I saw actual palm tree, like, all, all of California, that, that whole first summer was just amazing. First time using mass transit, like, and it was fun. It was just a lot of exploration. I mean, the Bay then was such a really interesting and vibrant era. It was like pre-Google, like about a year or so before Google, I think, uh, really kind of came into the public zeitgeist. And so it was just this really interesting time of like a lot of like innovation and electricity and wonder about like what the future could be so there was just a lot of activity going on in the bay area and it was just really interesting to be a part of that even in just a small way
1: were you considering a career in robotics at that point
0: um i don't know if i was so that's an interesting thing because uh, i was able to work on some robotics education stuff we were doing these uh these kind of tutoring sessions with uh, some local kids from uh, Chula Vista, but I might be getting that wrong. But we were teaching them how to use robotics. and uh, But I also did some HTML there. Like I made the robotics education homepage. And my my, uh, mentor, Terry Grant, who's retired now, but at the time when he was there, he allowed me to kind of work and do both of these things to kind of see which one I was more into. And I think by the time I left, I still wasn't... I still wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do, but I liked the fact that I had the opportunity to find out. The terminal part of the program was that at the end of it, you would be able to work for a NASA facility. Like you've interned for two facilities of your choice, and then you can decide after that which one, either one of those you want to work at or if you want to work at a different one. So it was kind of like a, a set deal. You mentioned the, the Moffitt Field internship. I was doing robotics work. I was doing HTML. And then I did another Um, NASA internship at Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, in normal Alabama, which is right outside of Huntsville, and was able to work with, like, human uh, factors engineering and 3D printing. And so, like, being able to kind of see these things in their industrial kind of stages, because, like, now 3D printing is something that, you know, makers kind of just do on a Saturday. (laughs) You know, I was seeing how they did it to create the nose cone for the space shuttle, which was just, like, to be exposed to that opportunity to know that this is something that I can do is great, but like that doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that I did. Just being able to have the exposure to it to see that this is an option was something I think that was really, really important, especially at that time, because I felt like, look, I know where I'm going to end up. It's going to be at a NASA facility somewhere, and I don't have to make that decision until like junior or senior year. So let me just have fun, learn as much as I can, and we'll see what happens. And then 9-11 hits and then 9/11 hits. I I was studying for a test in abstract it was my abstract algebra 2 course and I was in uh, the study hall at Kilgore which is one of the halls on Morehouse's campus and I actually saw a TV in like one of the other study rooms that was showing and they were showing like the first the plane crash into the first tower. And then like we're all just like transfixed watching everything as it happened. And I went to class and uh, the teacher was saying that classes were canceled for the rest of the day. You can go home. And I just remember trying to get home and it taking forever to do so because everyone was trying to get home at the same time. But, yeah, a couple, I think I want to say maybe a couple of weeks later, that's when they kind of let us know that that the program was going to sort of be coming to a bit of an end because funds were being diverted And so the promise initially that I had of, oh, you're going to go into working for NASA after you graduate was now like completely gone. Now it's like the end of junior year, you have no plans, or I had no plans, I should say, for what I was going to do when I graduated. And I had to find something like quickly because I hadn't been working towards any other goal. Like the goal was already set for me when I first stepped on campus and accepted the scholarship. And so at the end of junior year, I was really kind of stuck. I was working at the Woodruff Art Center at the time, selling tickets for the symphony and the theater. And I was like, is this what I'm going to be doing? It's like selling tickets for like eight bucks an hour. Cause that was all that I had lined up in terms of a job. I, I really hadn't been focusing towards anything else career wise at that point. You,
1: I think, also had a job at, in customer service at Auto Trader, but you got fired from there. Uh-huh. Um, not surprised. <laughs> um, and it took several years, but you finally got what you considered to be your first legitimate design job at an alternative weekly publication called Creative Loafing.
0: Oh no! I learned about the the first job that I got from Creative Loafing. So Creative oh. Loafing is this like weekly newsletter, and they had a position in the back for an electronic media specialist at the Georgia World Congress Center. okay, And really, I only applied to it because I had been doing so much design work just as a hobby that I had sort of built up somewhat of a portfolio. I had images that I had created. I had websites that I had done for people. And I could show those to say like, hey, I know what I'm doing. And so that's kind of where I feel like I got my first like legitimate start in the industry.
1: How did you get your senior designer job at AT AT&T? That came next,
0: right? That came next. So I stayed at uh, the Georgia World Congress Center for about a year and a half. And I was slowly being edged out from there. It was just not a good situation in the long run. And uh, I saw the the job at AT AT&T. And this is so this is now 2006. And I think for anyone that was in Atlanta that was doing design in 2006, no, you only had a handful of big companies that you could go work for. You could work for Turner. You can work for CNN, you can work for AT&T, or you can work for Home Depot.
1: Or Coca-Cola.
0: Or Coke, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was kind of it. And so the fact that I was getting an opportunity to, to start out at AT&T was really good. And I remember they gave me this test about, um, <laughs> they gave me this design test. They're like, okay, you have two types of websites that you can make. You can either make a, a website for a motocross uh, event, or you can make a website for a bridal shop. Which do you want to choose? And I chose the bridal shop. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, And I don't think they were expecting me to take the bridal shop. And so I did the bridal shop website. And I thought it was just a simple kind of three-page website. Laid it out. Designed it. Sent it to them. And uh, they really liked it. Came in. Did an interview. And then I started at uh, AT AT&T, which was a very... In hindsight, I, <laughs> I laugh at these experiences in hindsight. In hindsight, that was a really horrible, toxic work environment. Uh, I think the allure of working for a big-name company like that is what drew me in. I mean, we were working really long hours with like really grueling workloads, and they really kind of pitted you against your co-workers, and they had this board, ugh. I'll never forget the board. They had this sort of like board with every designer's name on it. And so all of the things that you designed at AT AT&T had a point value. So like websites, uh, like let's say a a five to nine page website is worth 10 points and a three page website is worth five points. But then if you do these little banners, those are maybe worth 0.5 points or something like that. And so every designer has a quota that they have to meet for the numbers by the end of the uh, end of the week. And so they would have all your names on a board, like a, a floor to ceiling board, and they had numbers and they would update the numbers daily. So you always knew exactly where you stood against all your coworkers. So if you were having an off week, everybody knew about it. And if you were having a great week and you were like sitting on on top of the heap, everybody was gunning for you. It was a very... Competitive environment.
1: (laughs) Wow. It sounds horrific.
0: Yeah. And what happened was uh, because they had just more work that needed to get done, they would decrease the point value of the items that you made, but then they would up the quota. So, like now, a five to nine page website may be only six points instead of 10. And then the quota you have to reach now is not 40, but 45. So now you got to keep doing more to get this higher number. And there was never a time when we cleared the queue that we were always about six months behind and getting work done. It was just a really hellish environment.
1: Sounds like it was probably organized to keep you feeling like you were Yeah, it was, it
0: was very much a production environment. I, I call it like a design sweatshop. You, you've said that some of the days there, the stress
1: was so bad, you started living on no-dos and apple juice and ultimately found out that though you were a senior designer you were being paid a salary less than a junior designer in fact you were making less than the janitor
0: so i was pissed because i knew that i had really worked my way up there i had done a lot to try to stay on top of the of the heap in terms of you know my points and everything i was taking work home and finishing it And so the fact that I had gotten promoted to senior designer and I, you know, just kind of anticipated I would be making more and to see that I was making so much less. I mean, I was, I was pissed. The first thing I did was I went to my manager and I told her about it. And she was like, yeah, I know. What? So it wasn't even something where she tried to like cover it up or say, oh, this must be a mistake. Let me fix it. She was like, yeah, I know that's what's happening. And so the next person I went to was, my contracting manager because I was actually contracting at AT&T so not being a full employee and my manager being a full employee she was just sort of like well I don't I don't really care like it doesn't have anything to do with me so once I told my contractor manager about it she was very mad and I think she was mostly mad because if the people that are contracting under her get a raise she gets a raise <laughs> and so basically tried to put everything in order to try to rectify the situation eventually ended up getting about six months of back pay for uh the time that i worked there as a senior designer and the day that the check hit my account i quit good for you
1: and that money that helped you start your your first business
0: yes that's what i used to start my studio yeah Uh, bravo yeah (laughs) at the time uh my studio was called Three Eighteen media spelled with the number three and the word 18. So three E I G H T E E N. It made sense at the time. It was your birthday. It was my birthday. Yeah. But like, also it was really difficult for people to get the spelling right. I was surprised at how many forms would not let you put a business name in that started with a number. Mm. So it was, there were all these like weird sort of, kind of issues with the name that I had I eventually ended up changing the name of the studio later to lunch which is a lot easier but yeah I used that initial money to start out and and create my studio which at the time was just uh, buying web space having enough money so I could at least you know have my bills paid while I tried to find steady clients and you know get a little bit of money to get cards printed so I could go to networking events and let people know hey I'm a designer and I can design your website for you. Cause like in those early days, I think when anyone kind of starts their studio, like you'll take anything just to get off the, just to get things rolling. Um, later, you can be more selective. But at the at the time I really was like, look, what do you need? Letterheads, business cards. I can do it. I can do all of that. Like it didn't, it didn't matter what the design job was. I would try to make it happen.
1: While well, you've done a lot of consulting for for a number of, Big and, and growing companies, you've had your business now throughout all of the other uh, experiences that you've had. Is that not correct?
0: No, that's true. I've I had the studio kind of mostly doing outward client work from 2008 to 2017, and then during that time, I had also started podcasting. Like I started doing Revision Path yes. when I had my studio. Um, I did consulting, I did speaking, I did teaching. So I got a master's degree, got a master's (laughs) degree. So I did a bunch of things kind of during the time that I had my studio. But then um, in late 2017, I was already kind of starting to wind things down. The market was just changing in terms of what people needed from designers. Like people were using more kind of out of the box site builder tools like Wix or Squarespace. And they didn't necessarily need custom WordPress designs. And they didn't want that either. They didn't want to deal with something as heavy as WordPress. They wanted something lighter that they could use. And so I had kind of been winding the studio down for that arm of the business anyway, and decided I would look for a full-time job and eventually found one at a company at the time that was called Fog Creek Software. And I joined the team there. Stayed there for two and a half years till I got laid off, and here I am. <laughs> well, you you are
1: still doing a lot of consulting work. You are doing a number of self generated projects, which have really catapulted you to the limelight. You started to create back, I think, while you were getting your master's degree, the Black Weblog Awards, mm-hmm. um, you've referred to as your. You did that in your spare time. <laughs> yeah. And, I read that you originally started it in opposition to the Weblog Awards. You knew that there were Black bloggers and podcasters that were doing great work, but they just weren't getting recognition and stated that the narrative the media was putting forth was that there was only one type of person able to create culture. Is it true that one of the issues you had with the Black Weblog Awards is that because Black was in the title, some people
0: didn't take it seriously? Oh, absolutely. So I <laughs> so me starting the Black Weblog Awards was at a time when I had friends of mine that were blogging. I had also been kind of blogging and writing online kind of pseudo-professionally for a while at that point. And so I knew that there were people that were doing a lot of great work around blogging that just were not getting any kind of recognition. And some of these people that were doing the blogging are now like entities that people know, such as... Jay Smooth or Baratunde Thurston or Afro Bella or like, so people now that are kind of known entities, but at the time I think we were all just kind of like slogging it out, trying to see if we would get, you know, readers or whatever. And I started it in 2005 initially, just trying to, you know, provide a platform so we could be recognized. I mean, I had saw the weblog awards that were happening from Nikolai Nolan Uh, he was doing it uh, he was doing like a live presentation of them at South by Southwest and they were called the bloggies and I think there was one year that I saw there was a category for best uh, I think it was best African or Mediterranean blog and like all of the, the, the finalists were white and I'm like you mean to tell me out of the entire continent of Africa and the Mediterranean there's no people of color that are blogging especially not any black people that seems to be pretty incredulous like I don't know if I believe that and that's not to say that you know th- that the narrative was being shifted in any sort of way but like what is being shown is that these are the people that are worthy of your your praise and your adoration and I'm like no I know some other people that are doing great stuff that should probably be recognized too and so I started off that really it was in my spare time I was I was um about I was thinking of starting my master's degree because at the time the the narrative that I was getting from a lot of people in my life was that oh you know the bachelor's degree is basically just a high school diploma and that if you really <laughs> wow. want to get ahead, you have to get a master's degree. And I'm like Do you think that's oh, true now? Hell no. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um my master's degree is in network and communications management, which is sort of like telecom management. But I have zero work experience in that. All my work experience has been in, like, design. Even as you mentioned about, like, my, my self-initiated projects, and I want to mention this because folks have asked before, like, why do I create a lot of, like, my own projects? And the reality of it is that I couldn't get hired anywhere. <laughs> that was that was the the reality. Um, you know, and I don't know if this is Why? Uni- why do
1: you think that's the case?
0: Well, I don't know if this is unique to the Atlanta market, but it's certainly something where... I just didn't have the, the pedigree f- to get hired at some of these, like, advertising places because I didn't have agency experience or I didn't go to this school or I didn't major in this subject. And so when you apply for these positions, like, that was the first thing I was hearing back. It's like, oh, you're a designer, but you, your degree is in math. Or what happened is that a lot of my entrepreneurial work just ended up getting looked over as a hobby. And so I end up creating these projects for myself because it's the only way that I'm getting work is that I'm kind of making the road by walking.
1: I find that to be really unfair. Um, Maurice, you've stated that as much as the tech and design industries would like to think of themselves as meritocracies, pervasive socialism still make up a lot of what happens. And you go on to state that you've been in the boardrooms and you've heard from people, and the meritocracies aren't really about skill. It has to do with people having unconscious bias that stems from the racism about what they believe people of color can do and achieve. Mm-hmm. And this very much sounds like what you have to have dealt with:
0: And it's you know it's it's an interesting, interestingly weird concept, especially at this particular time in history that we're at. You know, we're recording this right now in late July, but, you know, about a month or so ago in June, right around mid-June, you had this enormous outpouring from companies and individuals that, you know, were like, Black Lives Matter and we're going to elevate Black voices and all this sort of stuff. And I mean, that's great. You should have been doing that. But also for a lot of us that have been doing the work and have had to be on the other side of that. The question was like, well, how long is this going to be sustained? Is this just a flash in the pan type of instance of support? Or are you actually putting systems in place to actually make sure that this will be a continued thing that you try to make sure that you can make right? Do you already feel the energy waning? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I did a town hall thing uh, last week with a company whose name I won't mention uh, but we were doing this town hall, me and a, a colleague of mine, and we were sort of mentioning this, you know, this sort of very same thing. And one of the follow-up questions from that was around: How can I frame this? The company uses prison labor for some of the work that they do, and so they said, "How do we reconcile the fact that we use prison labor with the fact that we also don't really practice those things?" at headquarters in terms of like diversity and inclusion. And my response was that I don't think you can. I don't see how a company can reconcile using prison labor, especially when so many African-Americans are in or make up that population and then turn around and say, Oh, we're for diversity and inclusion at our headquarters. Come work for us. Like, I mean, you can own up to it. I don't know if many people know that that's a public thing, but that really sucks. Like, I wouldn't want to work here knowing that like that, that's really terrible. So I do think it's waning though. I mean, when I look at how this sort of played out in the tech industry, um, when some of the big, big tech companies like Google and Facebook and Apple, for example, were being called out for their lack of diversity. This was something that people had to kind of study over years. Like they had to see if the numbers were increasing or decreasing because these companies now were starting to put out diversity reports. I don't know if, design forward agencies will do that, or if the advertising industry will do that. But I just know for myself and certainly for several people that I know who were kind of on the the beneficiary side of some of that outpouring of support, a lot of that has dried up. It's been 35
1: years, Maurice, since Cheryl Holmes Miller first wrote her legendary article, Black Designers Missing in Action, And events like the recent online conference, Where the Black Designers, which took its name from actually work of yours, show that there are literally thousands upon thousands of black designers working today. Why do you think that organizations like the American Institute for Graphic Arts and the Type Directors Club, just to name two, are are having so much difficulty with their audiences and, and confronting this?
0: So I think that's the case for a few reasons. Uh, For starters, these organizations were created during a time where they didn't even have to think about this. I mean, I don't know how old the Type Directors Club is. I think it may be about, what, 70, 80 years old, perhaps, if that old. Uh, But I know AIGA is well over 100 years old. I mean, black people were barely free 100 years ago, Mm -hmm. so certainly they weren't thinking about us being graphic designers. I mean, you can probably attest to this, too, with your experience with AIGA. As the organization has gotten older, there's been this, this uh, thing of wanting to hold on to a lot of tradition. And so as the organization changes from year to year, it's not changing, I think, in the right ways to take into account that there now is, you know, more and more people of color, black people, Asian, Let, you know, Latino, et cetera, that are a part of this industry. For AIGA, I think in particular, it's the G part the graphic part that is probably the biggest or one of the biggest issues because now design is so much more than just like visual design. There's experiential design and sound design and UI UX. There's a lot of different types of design. And I don't know if these are all kind of considered as design principles under an organization like that. Uh, But also these are organizations that honestly don't really have people of color at the top either and so if you don't have that representation in the company at its highest levels, then it's kind of hard for you to take stock of those at the lowest. Yes.
1: You know, when people ask me, what do you suggest we do? I'm like, look at your board. Yeah. If it doesn't have the, the equal amount of people of color, if it doesn't have the equal amount of women, if it doesn't have the equal amount of LGBTQ+, then you're doing something wrong. Then you have to change. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not that hard.
0: (laughs) Well, and I mean, you know, right. But the thing is also like it's it's diversity and inclusion. So it's one thing even if you have them at the top, but like, are there voices being heard? Mm -hmm. I mean, I can just say from the times that I've had with being on the National DNI Task Force, there are a lot of times that we were not heard at all. We were really just there as figureheads, or at the very worst, as maintenance people Mm -hmm. to clean up a mess that headquarters might have done in some sort of odd racial gaffe that now we have to sort of get in front of and say, oh, wait, well, they actually meant, well, they meant this and they didn't mean. Like, that's ridiculous. We're all volunteering here, you know?
1: You're right. It's not just about diversity. It is also about inclusion. Yeah. That actually leads me to wanting to talk a bit about your podcast. So you decided to start your podcast, Revision Path, in 2013, You interview black designers, developers, creators, and makers on your podcast. The show is one so many awards it's the only podcast in the smithsonian's permanent collection congratulations on that you. you've said that if you would have known that there were other black designers while you were growing up in selma alabama that might have made a world of difference and i can't help but wonder how much of a difference you're now making to young people all over
0: the world who listen to your podcast wow I mean, I, I hope it is. It's it's interesting because I'll get letters every now and then from people that have just heard about the podcast or they heard about it from a friend and now they want to know more information. Just the other day, I got a letter from uh, from an educator in Brazil who's been teaching it in his classes in Sao Paulo. It sort of goes to the point of being able to kind of change the history or at least add to the history that already exists with graphic design, because a lot of what I'm you know, doing when I'm talking to these people, at least I don't feel like it's super new in the fact that I'm like uncovering something. I mean, we've always been around doing the work in tandem with other designers. The only problem is no one has actually talked to them about it. No right. one's actually said, hey, what do you think about this? Or tell me your story about how you came to where you are now. Like no one's asked that question. I would say... Well over 95% of the people I've had on the show, like it's the first time anyone has ever had like a professional interview with them about their work outside of the context of getting a job. And it makes me think certainly at those times when, I mean, I was sort of trying to find my way, especially in college, trying to find out like what different thing I was going to do, what I was going to go into. I mean, certainly I saw, you know, other role models that look like me in other places, but certainly not in design, You know, like, I couldn't go to Barnes & Noble and pick up, say, Computer Arts Magazine or Net Magazine and look through the pages and see someone that looked like me doing this. I couldn't see that. Conversely, even if I was on the web looking at, you know, maybe some of these design media platforms, it's the same thing. Like, I don't see where I'm a part of this. And I think now what's been great with technology is the fact that so many people's stories can get shared in a more democratic fashion. Uh, It's really just about how you find it and how it gets introduced to you. It's less about the fact that it doesn't exist. Now it does exist. And so now people can search it out and they can share it and they can learn more about it. And so, I mean, I feel like each episode that I have, I mean, one, it's a bridge between me and the guest, but it's also a, a bridge between the guest and the listener to say like, hey, here's a look into my world and this is what I do. And if you're interested you can do these things. Or if you want to reach out to me, here's where you can find me. Like, Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's huge. Well, I think that you're doing a lot to help grow the recognition and the presence and importance of people of color within the design industry and beyond. I mean, you rightly stated that the people who end up being profiled for the most part in the design media or speaking at design conferences tend to be the same seven or eight dozen people. And That also applies to those who win and judge design awards. So I think that this is something that is absolutely necessary for us to be able to have a future in the design community that is represented by the people that are actually doing the work. Um, I think it's really important that people like Timothy Goodman, Wendy McNaughton, you know, they are, are two white people that when they are invited to conferences now, demand to see who else is invited to ensure that there is an equal number of diverse voices included. And I think that that is something that people in the design business that have reached a certain level have a responsibility to do now. Do you think that those things can make a difference?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I kind of have always said, and this is something that even harkens back to the the 2015 presentation I did uh, at South by Southwest called Where Are the Black Designers, is that it's going to take the people in those positions of power to seed some of that in order to make sure that, you know, it's a more equitable kind of representation of what the industry actually is. I mean, I think we're very fortunate within the past five years or so that, the optics are starting to change. I still think there's more work that has to be done just in general because we're looking at the design industry, which in and of itself is very broad and varied, and there's intersections with technology. And so there's a lot of ways that quote-unquote design can go in terms of its reach. It's going to take, I think, that seeding of power and opening up opportunities in order to really kind of make that change happen, you know? You've
1: also recently launched a publication, an online publication called Recognize, which is a design anthology featuring essays and commentary from indigenous people and men and women of color, uh, the next generation of emerging design voices. What made you decide to create this project and when, when do you think it is going to launch its second issue?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I started it really at the time after I won the Stephen Heller Prize, uh, and I remember uh, Julie Annixter, who was the executive director of AIG at the time, when she told me that I was going to be up for winning the award. I remember going to the AIGA website and I saw who had won in years prior, and I'm like, why am Why am I getting this? Like, I'm not a writer. I'm not writing, like I'm just doing these podcasts. Like it's not, it's not the same thing. And, you know, she kind of explained about how this is like design anthropology and you're kind of collecting all these people's stories and I'm like, yeah, that's true. That is happening. But it had been, you know, about a year or so after that and I had been talking about the award and talking about the work that I had been doing and people would always ask me like, what's the one piece of advice that you, would give to designers as a skill that they need to have. And I would always say writing. One, because I just think it's important because we have to do so much writing, whether it's emails or web copy or micro copy or proposals or anything like that. It just helps you to get better and faster at all of that stuff. But also it helps you to be able to like write up case studies and talk about your work and hopefully get to a point where you can write about it in a way that other people can discover, whether it's in medium articles or magazine articles or books or something like that. It's just a skill that you should have because one thing that I saw from both the Black Weblog Awards and really from the time doing Revision Path is that if you're not the one telling your own story, there's probably not going to be that many platforms that will let you tell it, that will give you that opportunity to kind of say, this is what I do. And I mean, I operated in this space for a while myself, this space of feeling like I had to be discovered, you know, like Mm. on the corner of Hollywood and Vine or something like that, you know, like I would do the work and people would come and like, that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes you have to
1: put the work out
0: there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm still on the, I'm still on that corner. But, but But you have to like put the work out there or at least, you know, market and express yourself in a way. So folks know that this is what you do because especially I think if you're like, an in-house designer somewhere, your manager is probably not going to be the one singing your praises. You have to be the one to do that. You have to be the one to be able to talk about the work that you've done and the work that you're continuing to do. And so in that same vein of knowing that writing was so important and also getting messages from people that are saying that they're trying to find books by black designers and can't find any even looking at magazines and such, I mean, back when I was doing the research for Where are the Black Designers, I was finding out about all these old design magazines that don't exist anymore yeah. and seeing how they would talk about diversity and inclusion if they talked about it at all. So doing Recognize was a way to kind of say, okay, we need to add to the canon that's out there. We need to be able to add to the work that already exists and say, these are our voices. This is what we're talking about. This is what we're interested in. And so... Uh, the first version of the uh, first volume, I should say, of the anthology I did was with Envision. I did it as part of their initial funding. And so we did the first year of it last year in 2019. And then we did do a second volume for uh, 2020. We'll say it's it's uh, it's in progress. Let me say that. Basically, what I do is I give a word and then I want people to write around the word. So for the first volume, the word was space. And so people mm. would write about space and how that com- what that concept means to them in terms of design, and then the second word was fresh, and so this came right at the time that the pandemic really started to hit the country. We don't have funding this year. I do want to publish it this year. So if there's any companies that are listening, you know, mm. let me Step know. On up. <laughs> um, but I I am hoping to scrape things together to publish uh, by the end of this year. We certainly have enough entries, I think, to do maybe a shorter version of it. Fingers crossed, knocking on wood, that that will happen.
1: Maurice, my last question for you is about something I noticed on your website. You have an enigmatic new project called Mon Cherie. Um, (laughs) Hoping I pronounced that correctly. (laughs) That's, Um, That's correct. Can you tell us a bit more about what that
0: might be? Yeah. So it's essentially going to be just like a fast fashion clothing line. Ooh. So I had been doing merch through revision path on and off for a few years to like middling results. Um, And so this was an idea to do a series of design shirts that I would collaborate with other artists on and, you know, maybe we would branch out and do other apparel besides shirts. But I think initially I was just thinking t-shirts. And so I would have like a collection that's just for revision path. And then maybe a collection for like witty sayings or something like that. I don't know. But that is what Moncherry is.
1: Wonderful. I can't wait to see it. Maurice Cherry, thank you so much for doing so much important work in the world and for bringing your voice and so many voices of so many wonderful people to the world as well. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters.
0: Debbie, thank you so much for having me. This, this uh, interview is a career highlight for me, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You can find out more about what Maurice Cherry is up to on his website, mauricecherry.com, and you can listen to his podcast on revisionpath.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland.